You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So. Twice recently on the podcast, I have urged people in long-term relationships or people thinking about getting married to to go and listen to Stephen Sondheim's shows, Company and Follies. There's a lot of wisdom in Stephen Sondheim's work about relationships and that sort of sorry, grateful feeling that people in long-term relationships often experience uh, and, and how that isn't indicative of you know a, a need to end the relationship or some fundamental flaw in the relationship, that this is actually just – what a long-term relationship is all about. Sort of a character is asked in company, if you're ever sorry you got married, and he sings, you're always sorry, you're always grateful. That's a long-term relationship in a, in a brilliant lyric, in a brilliant phrase, in a brilliant song, in a brilliant show by a brilliant man, Stephen Sondheim. I podcasted about this a couple of times, talked, urged people to go listen to those. And the Sondheim fans on Twitter all sort of uh, rose up and <laughs> celebrated the fact that I was pushing people to go listen to Stephen Sondheim. And the Sondheimosphere on Twitter is a real thing. There are a lot of Stephen Sondheim fans out there. A lot of them are on Twitter. Uh, and there are times in my long-term relationship that you know, listening to leave you in follies, leave you, leave you, how could I leave you? How could I do it alone? It has helped as listening to Sorry Grateful uh, in company has helped. And I was thinking about this today as I was walking to work to to record this today's podcast uh, because this is the sixth anniversary of my mother's death. Literally today, uh, about 40 minutes from now, six years ago in Tucson, Arizona, my mother died. And once again, the American musical theater was there for me. Not Sondheim in this case, but uh, Robert Lopez and Jeff Marks who wrote the music and lyrics for Avenue Q, the Broadway award-winning show. Jeff Whitty wrote the book, uh, directed by Jason Moore. Terrific uh, fucking show. Still running in New York all these years later. So good. So good. Um, and I had seen it shortly before my mother died and then got it on my iPhone shortly after my mother died. And for months, or probably for a month solid, I, you know, you exaggerate these things when you, you try to remember them or the time seems to be longer. But there was about a month where I did nothing but sit in a park in Seattle with my headphones in listening to For Now from Avenue Q over and over and over and over again with lyrics like everyone's a little bit unsatisfied. Everyone goes round a little empty inside. Take a breath. Look around. Swallow your pride for now. The, the, the song is genius. You know, you'll be faced with problems of all shapes and sizes. You're going to have to make a few compromises for now. Life goes on full of surprises, some of them pleasant, some of them not. And I was thinking about this uh, song uh, today, the anniversary of my mother's death. Last week, I actually sent it to a friend who's having a really hard time right now, um, struggling uh, with issues, problems, things a lot of people have faced uh, and not being able to see the way out. And the song helped him. So I'm passing this song along today on the podcast as I passed along Sorry Grateful, as I passed along Leave You, as I passed along Company and Follies. Because if you're in a bad place right now, the American Musical Theater is there for you, straight or gay. It's there for you. It can actually help. And it helped me, this song from this show, Honest to God, got me through those weeks. This song from Avenue Q, this song from this show, 
got my friend last week through a really difficult spot. And if you're in a difficult spot and a lot of people who listen to the show, they call with problems. A lot of you out there listening, you're in difficult spots. You might want to get the original Broadway cast recording of Avenue Q. The whole show is terrific. But if you're in a bad way, For Now is transformative. For Now will help. It helped me. It can help you. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. So I know you just covered this question recently with, you know, trying to date somebody who's in professional school and it being a really difficult thing. But I started dating somebody who is in vet med school and he very aggressively pursued me. He was very excited. He seemed really genuine and was, you know, initiating this conversation about the fact that, you know, he's very selective with dating. Uh, he only wants to date somebody who he thinks has the potential to be a forever partner. And so from very early on, we had these conversations about the possibility of a future. And so even though, like, I have a job that I move around a lot with, I was really willing to consider terms of this being a long-term thing and maybe like making some personal sacrifices because he obviously can't leave this program before he finishes. And he just dumped me like out of the blue this weekend because he thought the time schedule wasn't working for him because right now my job is 40 hours a week. He has school commitments that, you know, he's spending 80, 90 hours a week studying and Rather than having a discussion about the friction, he just decided to end the relationship. And I don't know what to do about it. On one hand, I feel angry that he was kind of emotionally irresponsible and not checking in with me and having conversations about what was appropriate or what was not. And on the other hand, I still have very deep feelings for him and feel like this was something that we had a lot of potential and a really good connection. So I just wanted to ask your advice about what to do. My advice about what to do, uh, eat ice cream, uh, go to the gym, see movies, fuck other people. That's, those are your only options. You know, I could issue a ruling. I could issue a savage love cast fatwa and declare that his dumping of you is entirely illegitimate and entirely unjustified and that the end. I, I can't order him to undo this dumping. I can't order him to take you back. I can't order him to resume dating because on a technicality, you know, he wasn't checking in with you about what needed to be done differently. And of course, you have deep feelings about him. On those two technicalities, he is obligated to stay with you forever or to continue dating you or resume dating you. So there's really nothing here to do. You could send him a quick email that says, well, that's too bad. I feel a little badly handled. I feel a little abused. Uh, I'm still open to dating you if and when your schedule settles down uh, and you're still single. Give me a holler. If I'm still single, then maybe we could try this again because I thought there was something there. And then go the fuck away because what other choice do you have? You have no other choice. Even with me on you, your side, even if I was hurling fatwas like thunderbolts into his email inbox, there's no way back into his life, into his pants, into his apartment without his buy-off without his consent. That's what sucks about getting dumped or getting divorced. The person dumping or divorcing you doesn't need your permission to dump or divorce you. And as we said on the show a couple of weeks ago, 
Closure. You're probably interested in closure. Closure is something that you do. It is not something that is given to you. It's not something the other person owes you. So close it. And also connect the dots. You know, sometimes when people break up with people, they're speaking in code. It is possible that this, I only date people that I could see myself with. I only date women where there's a potential really long-term, loving, lasting connection, a forever relationship. Maybe he meant that. Or maybe he was lying. Right? Could have been lying. Could have been lies. But let's assume that he meant it and you guys dated. Dating is an elimination discovery process. Maybe he could see you as a potential life mate until he got to know you better and then he had to let you go. And rather than saying, the more I get to know about you, the less I like you or the less I can see us being together forever. The less of a match I think we are, the more I get to know about you, he trotted out what in his case probably isn't entirely a white lie. He is super busy. But rather than saying, it's you, you're not what I want, he said, I don't have time for you. Even though I want you so desperately, I don't have time for you right now. And so I have to end this. That could have been a polite way of saying, at the start, thought you might be the one. Not that there is a one. There's a 0.74 you round up to one. But you're not. So here are your walking papers. That would have been harder to hear, right? Which is one of the tricks of dating and mating and getting dumped is sometimes you have to hear that when the other person is giving you the polite, ego-sparing, conflict avoidance, white lies, the code that everyone uses. Not you. It's me. Just not ready for a relationship right now. Still carrying a torch for my ex or whatever it is. Usually what someone is saying when they say those things is you're not what I want. I, I, I don't I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to be cruel to you. But part of being an adult is connecting the dots. And it might help you not carry a torch for this guy if, if you accept that he dumped you because you weren't it for him. So and if you're not it for him, he can't be it for you. So you didn't lose anything in the losing of him, if that's the case. Ice cream, movies, gym, fuck other people. We're going to take a quick break from the calls and get right back to the calls in a second uh, after I make this announcement. As Magnum subscribers know, we're coming up to the end of a season, so it will be time to re-up. But we have some good news. Starting April 22nd, we are changing the way the Magnum episodes work to be more intuitive and fair and a better deal for everybody. We are switching from seasons with set dates to what we're calling the all-access pass. This means that when you buy a subscription to the Magnums, you get access to every Magnum we've ever made for as long as your subscription lasts. So you can listen to old shows or the new shows as they come out. You can buy one year for $36, six months for $20, like it's always been, or a one-month pass for 5 bucks. So if you've never tried the Magnums, you can buy that month pass and listen to a bunch of them before you decide to commit to a longer subscription. Also, the subscriptions from now on will auto-renew as many of you have asked for, but you can easily opt out of that if you don't want to auto-renew. So April 22nd, the dawn of the all-access pass at the Savage Lovecast. Look for it. Dan, I am in an open, monogamous relationship with the love of my life. Uh, you always say that children have a right to not know things about their parents, but today my daughter, using my computer, of communications between me and other women, and uh, was very upset, thinking that I am cheating on uh, her stepmom. I explained to her that we're open. Uh, this did not help. Uh, she now thinks I am disgusting, 
and this is a 16-year-old girl. So we'd love to hear your take on this, on, on packing this with a teen who I tried to protect from it, didn't understand. I'm now regretting being misleading and not locking up my computer a little better. All 16-year-old girls think their parents are disgusting. If it wasn't this, it was going to be something else. I think you need to perhaps be a bit more aggressive with her. I, I, I also think it might help if the stepmom wasn't there when you had this convo, to have the convo with the stepmom there so that it is obvious and verifiable that you aren't lying to her. You know, of course, of course you would say you were in an open, honest, monogamish relationship when I found evidence of you were cheating. She might think you're lying to her about the openness, if not the other partners. So having stepmom there to vouch for you in that awkward moment might help. Then you say to her, look, now you know something about me that you probably didn't want to know. That's what comes from snooping. That's what comes from not respecting people's privacy. And it's really your fault that you have these mental images. It's my fault too for not closing up my computer. Your fault for reading emails. They were none of your business. Now you know things about your parents. And you know the thing about kids is they don't want to think their parents have sex with each other. They don't want to think their parents have sex. At, they don't want to think their parents ever take their pants off. And so to be confronted with that at 16 when she's in that stage of life where people are really – I think adolescents are often very torn up about sex and sexuality and how you know they're being – dragged out to sea, right? When you're a little kid, sex is a gross thing that adults do and you say you're never going to do it because it's a gross thing. And then you hit puberty and you're swept away, kind of against your will. That's why I think a little bit of sex negativity is hardwired into the human experience because when you're little, ick, sex, gross, adults do that disgusting thing and then puberty comes and suddenly this thing that when you were pre-puberty, like, I'm never going to do that, you're doing it. So she may be projecting onto you a little bit of her discomfort with her own emerging sexuality and you just may have to tough that out and shoulder that, right? Deal with being – deal with having that projected on you. But really, just a big download. We say you know things now that you probably didn't want to know. Let's go back to the way it works with parents and children. You pretend that I don't have sex and I pretend that I don't have sex and you don't read my fucking emails and I don't read your emails and we respect each other's privacy and sexual autonomy and here's – Birth control for you. I hope she's already on birth control. She's a 16-year-old girl. And now we don't have to talk about this ever again. But yeah, your parents are sexual and some people are in open relationships and I am one of those people in an open relationship. You probably would rather have not known that and there was a simple way to not know that. But it's too late. So deal. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old woman in an open relationship with a 26-year-old man and uh, mostly things are going really well. We feel like being open has definitely brought us closer together. We're both queer, so we both date men and women, which is awesome. And we've had a few experiences in group sex situations, most of which have been completely awesome and affirming. But uh, my boyfriend has what I hesitate to even define as a typical problem because to me, I don't see it as a problem, but of course he does, so it's a problem, which is that... Um, he has trouble getting and staying hard when he doesn't know someone that well, which I think is so um, so not a problem. <laughs> I would never think to criticize a man because he likes getting to know people. Um, I think that's part of the reason I like him is that he has a certain um, respect and care and sex means more to him. Um, but he's really self-conscious about this, uh, especially when there are other guys because some of them can get hard more quickly than he can. 
And I don't know what to say to him because I'm a girl and I don't have a penis. And I certainly don't want to say, well, that really sounds like a non-problem to me because I know it's a problem for him. And that would make me sound like an asshole. But I just don't know how to communicate to him that it's just not a thing. And I just really don't think that any of the nice people we're with who we know and we vetted would think this was a thing either. I think he wouldn't even have to say anything. But I don't know. Um, I would really appreciate your advice because may not be that big a thing, but it really gets him down, and I want to help my boyfriend be happy. Thanks a lot. I don't remember when I read it, and I could jump on Google and find it, or you could jump on Google and find it, but there was research out of a university somewhere a while ago that found that uh, men have a much easier time becoming aroused with familiar partners, and women have an easier time becoming aroused with unfamiliar partners, which tells us a lot about men and women, I think, and a lot about dick. Um, dick is, as I've said, Tinkerbell. you got to believe it's sometimes easier – to get an erection with someone who's seen you get erections before because they believe in your, the power of your penis to be all stiff and hard and useful and mighty. And that confidence that you draw from that other person um, helps. And then you don't have as much anxiety attached to that particular uh, sexual interaction because you know they've been with you a bunch of times. So if you don't get hard that time, it doesn't have to mean anything and they know that your dick works usually most of the time and that one time that you don't get hard, you can – Shrug off because they know. They know that you're good to go almost always. With new people, people who don't believe in your dick because they haven't been with your dick before, for some guys, that's harder or more difficult, I should say, in this context. That's a, that's a harder leap. And your guy just needs to accept that this is how his dick works and that there's lots of things you can do in a group that aren't entirely reliant on him having a hard dick. And if he's worried about what other people might think, he just needs to get out in front of his potentially soft penis and throw it on the table, plop his soft penis and just say, sometimes the first couple of times I get together with people, I don't get hard because I'm one of those guys who needs to know somebody and really like them and feel comfortable with them. And then my dick is there and you can say, it sure is. But sometimes, you know, first couple of times, it's not going to be about my dick. It'll be about your dick. It'll be about oral and rolling around and intimacy and touch and all these other great things that don't hinge on my erection. And if he can say that, it will relieve the pressure and the anxiety. It will relieve the performance anxiety that he doubtless feels. You know, part of what he's worried about in that moment is they're looking at me and thinking he's not hard. They're looking at me and thinking I'm not having a good time. They're looking at me and thinking he isn't into it. And if he tells them in advance, I'm totally into it. I have a really great time. First time I get together with new people, don't, don't count on my dick. It's not going to be about my dick. It's going to be about me blowing you, me eating your pussy, us rolling around, other things. Your dick, your pussy. That's what it's going to be about. I'm a service top bottom boy in, in, in an interaction like this. And then the pressure's off. But he's got to own how his dick works, own how – his dick is sort of wired, not to his tits, not to his ass like some people's dicks, but wired to his sense of emotional comfort, familiarity, and again, get out in front of it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old female, and I currently live with my 47-year-old dad, and I have been for the last five years. He travels a lot for work for a couple weeks at a time. I went into his bedroom looking for a spare laptop charger when I found used women's panties under his bed. This normally wouldn't be an issue because everyone has their kinks, even if they squick me out. The problem is there was a pair of my panties there as well, 
and I know they're mine because they've been missing for a few weeks. They're the same pattern and same brand, so I'm 99% sure they're mine. Anyway, I know this is probably considered snooping and snoopers are pieces of shit, but this does concern me simply because my panties were there. I'm also pretty sure he's not cross-dressing because he is a heavy man and these panties were definitely not his size. My dad has been divorced for over nine years. He's never had a girlfriend to my knowledge. He never brings home women. The only time he leaves his house is to go to work and to church. Everyone in my church is related to us as well, so I'm fairly confident in saying that they don't belong to anyone in our church, so I don't know where these panties came from. I don't know if he just has a panty fetish or if he has feelings towards me because my panties were there. He's never displayed any predatory behavior towards myself or my brother. He doesn't make inappropriate comments or talk to me at all, really. He's a quiet, boring person to my knowledge. If he'd shown any predatory behavior when we were kids, I know my mom would have removed my brother and I from the house immediately. I don't know if this is something I should talk to my mom about. I don't know if this is something she knows about and just didn't tell my brother and I because it's really none of our business as long as we're safe. I wouldn't care so much about this, but the fact that they're my panties makes this more confusing and concerning to me. I'm considered the fact that he got desperate and took my panties just to have panties. I can't help but wonder if it's a real possibility he's thinking about me when masturbating. What should I do? I'm just going to acknowledge out of the gate how creepy and unnerving this discovery is and how I want to validate how uncomfortable you feel in this space you now share with your dad, having found your panties under his bed with some other panties. That's awful and awkward. I cling to two things here, that your father has in no way ever behaved inappropriately toward you, has not made creepy sexual comments, has not uh, ever touched you in an inappropriate way. Discovering these panties didn't for you then cause you to look back over your life and connect a series of dots that you know painted a picture of you know a dad with an incest fetish or a dad who was sexually attracted to his own children and that would be – Ever so much worse. I also cling to the fact that there were other panties there too, not just yours. Yours was one pair among others. So it does seem as if your father has a fetish not for your panties but for panties. You didn't find 10 pairs of your panties alone under that bed. You found a selection of panties, one set of which was a missing pair of your own. Under the circumstances, with those two things to cling to, your father has never in any way behaved inappropriately toward you or your brother in your life and not just your panties under the bed but a selection. It seems to me that you could give your father the benefit of some very grave and unnerving doubts. You know, When we talk about people giving people the benefit of the doubt, we don't give them the benefit of the doubt about whether they're aliens or Maria of Romania or – you know, they have next week's lottery numbers delivered to them by a bunny rabbit in the middle of the night. We give them the benefit of grave doubts so that we can be at a certain amount of peace with them, right? And at peace in our relationship with them. So I think the right thing to do, I think really the only thing to do here is to assume that your father got desperate and took your panties to have panties, as you said. Not took your panties because he wants to get into your panties or is into you or is sexually attracted to you. If he was sexually attracted to you in a way that you know he had these uncontrollable impulses, I imagine there would have been other incidents over the course of your adult life considering you live with him now as an adult. 
hasn't happened. For your own comfort, your own peace of mind, give them the benefit of the doubt. And think about moving out and getting some distance from your father. That might help put you at ease too. And put this behind you. I wouldn't go and talk to your mother about it. Your parents are divorced. You said that if there had ever been anything inappropriate, your mother would have intervened. And your parents are condemned post-divorce to have a relationship with each other always because of their shared interest in their adult children and their presence in their adult children's lives. And looking at all the evidence on the table, I don't think that now knowing what you know about your dad and his panty fetish that you accidentally, giving them out of the doubt, got swept up in, that it would be I don't want to say fair to your father because I don't think in this instance that fairness to him is our primary concern. But I don't think it would be beneficial to you or, or appropriate to potentially so fuck up your dad's relationship with his ex-wife and with his other child by trotting this out to get their assessment of it. It is super fucking creepy. Move out. Get some distance. If need be, confront your dad. Don't go to your mom but confront your dad and say, what up with this? I'm sorry. Wasn't snooping. Shouldn't have been in your room. Shouldn't have been under your bed. But what up? He's not going to say, I'm into you. I've always been into you. Even if that's true, he will say, oh, I'm so mortified and apologetic and sorry. Panty fetish, panty fetish. How much access does, does a middle-aged divorced man have to stray panties? Not a lot. So he sees the opportunity of your living under his roof to acquire another pair of panties, not your pair of panties. Maybe hearing that out of his mouth might help you forgive and never forget. Sorry you're in this position. Like we said earlier to the caller whose daughter found out that he was in an open relationship and pursuing sex with other partners. When you snoop, when you dig around in your parents' porn collections, computers, under their beds. You may find out things about your parents that make it very difficult to be in the same room again with your parents or to see your parents the way you've always seen them. So be careful because the thing you learn, the panties you find, the emails you read may give you screaming nightmares. Hey, Dan. Okay, so after months of searching, my partner and I have finally found a fun, hot threesome partner, and we've had about four threesomes so far. Everything's been fine. There's been no emotional issues, except for one thing. He can't stay hard during it, and like he can't even get hard if I'm sucking him off or something. I've talked to him about this, and he said he isn't anxious. He doesn't feel nervous. He's attracted to everyone, and we can't figure it out. He literally, he just can't, fit. he doesn't feel anxious or anything, any of the normal reasons why people usually can't stay hard. Um, I talked to him a bit, and I thought maybe the answer is that when we're alone, there's not as many inhibition problems as there might be when we're with two people, and also we have kinky sex when we're together and we're having vanilla sex with her at the moment. Do you have any idea what maybe we could do to help? It's starting to distress him and starting to ruin the experience for him, and we're still having fun, and we really enjoy it, but he's starting to feel kind of inadequate. Um, is your boyfriend in the car? Yeah, he is. Oh, okay. Hi. 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 Um, tell him he I'm said s- hi. sorry about his dick. <laughs> he said sorry about your dick. But here's... Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it happened, but 
it does happen. And, and we talked about this earlier on the show today that, you know, uh, men have an easier time becoming erect with a familiar partner. It does seem uh-huh. li- though like with four uh, dates with this unicorn that you've discovered that that person should be becoming familiar to you and familiar to him and he should be clearing that hurdle now um, because she's not a stranger. It's not the first time. So hopefully you're burning through the – First time nervous jitters and the performance anxiety. So my prescription would be a prescription. Why not get a Viagra or a generic Viagra and if not the pill itself doing the job, the placebo effect perhaps doing the job. A lot of men uh, take Viagra and I think often it's the you know the Tinkerbell effect. It makes them believe in their erections and then they have them plus the physiological stuff that Viagra brings to the table too also that can't be denied. Um, so if he's yeah, we're, worried, we're like, thinking about pills, but we're kind of poor college students, and uh, uh, we have the money. Well, there are generic. You know, Viagra itself is very, very, very expensive. Uh, I can't remember what it is per pill, but it's crazy. But there are generic Viagras now. It's no longer under. Uh, it's not copyright. What is that? Patent. Its patent has expired. So you can get generic Viagra that's really, really cheap, like a few dollars a pill, not 40 or 50 or whatever a Viagra costs. And it has the same, and it has the same effect. So uh, well, we might try this, but we're going to, I don't know, try other things first. Like what? Um, Oysters? Like I mentioned, we think that maybe introducing kink would help because like every time we're together, it's kind of kinky, but with her, it's been like almost completely vanilla. But she's like really interested in trying everything. Okay. Well, you know, Dr. Marty Klein has been a frequent guest on the show. We've talked about erectile dysfunction in a lot of men. It isn't that they have any physical or psychological problem. It's just that they're not doing the things that turn them on. So maybe it's that. If every time you guys have sex and his dick is going gangbusters, it's got a kink element or some power play overlay or something else is happening that's that's absent when you have these three ways – that's probably it. That's probably the problem. Okay. We were going to introduce that next time. So, Well, if she's willing and able, introduce it and then you've got this controlled experiment and you can see what it is that his dick requires. If you've done vanilla four times with her and his dick has been on and off and you do kink with her and his dick is there, then uh, kink for him isn't optional. It's a requirement. Okay. And if that doesn't work, try pills. All right. We can do that. Good luck to you and your partner and his dick. All right, thanks. Hi, Dan. I have some questions about polyamory. I'm Polly, and a lot of my friends are Polly, and we are sort of of the child-having age. And most people at this point are not out to their children, although some are. And what I'm trying to figure out and what I've just been kind of thinking about broadly is how, at what age is it appropriate to tell your child that you're Polly? not details of your sex life, just who's important to you. And how do you set that up so that your kids don't feel like they have to keep secrets for you with other children or at school or, you know, obviously, like, you need to be out to your parents before you're out to your children. But, you know, that coming out process, how do you manage it so that kids feel like they have the power to talk about their own lives, but at the same time, they don't necessarily get their parents into, I don't know, a shitload of trouble at work, say. Um, your thoughts? Thanks. 
Joining me by phone from New York City to help field this question, Diana Adams is managing partner of Diana Adams Law and Mediation, a law firm in New York City serving mostly queer, non-traditional, and polyamorous families. She's also a law school professor who is openly queer and polyamorous and does national media about her poly life. She was recently accused of, quote, hanging a shadow of Sodom and Gomorrah over America by the Christian right, which makes her an ideal guest on this podcast. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Diana. Glad to be here, taking time away from hanging the shadow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, hang the shadow of Sodom and Gomorrah on us <laughs> for uh, 10 minutes. So this is an issue for a lot of people who are poly, who have kids. How do you roll this out to your kids, particularly if you know, you're not out to your parents about being poly or you know, your kids may be bullied or lose friends if you know, they're open with their friends about their parents being poly? What's the, what's the best practices here when it comes to being poly and having kids and whether you should be out to them or not and what burden it places on your children to be out to them about being poly? That's a great question um, and I was glad to get that from the caller. I work on child custody cases nationwide related to polyamorous parents. And the argument I make on behalf of these parents in court is that they are using good parenting judgment by putting their kids' needs first, not encouraging the kids to get attached to temporary romantic partners or exposing the kids to adult sexuality. The same kinds of good parenting judgment factors you'd consider if they were monogamous uh, or if they were straight versus gay. Mm -hmm. And might find a supportive forensic psychologist if necessary to interview the child and parents and report that the child is doing well, which they generally are, because... Kids do very well in polyamorous families as long as parents are using good judgment in these ways because kids are self-centered and they mostly will notice that there are more people around who love them and want to play with them and spend time with them. And so coming out to them can be age appropriate in that kids aren't going to notice whether they're in a romantic relationship or whether the person who lives with mom and dad is sleeping with mom or um, rather is just somebody who spends a lot of time with them after school. So really the key there is that these are stable relationships you're introducing your child to, and then you'll know when it's time to talk to the child about the fact that this is a polyamorous relationship because the child will get curious. That often happens maybe when the kids are preteens. And so until then, this is just one more kind of extended family relationship. And in most places in the country, there's now a great proliferation of family diversity. There's divorced parents, remarried parents, gay parents, extended families living in households. And nuclear families as straight monogamous parents with kids are now the minority. So kids won't necessarily be teased at school just because uh, their family configuration looks different. And I think it's important uh, to get to that piece that the caller asked about, about how do you keep your child from having to keep secrets for you? It's really important that you avoid telling your children secrets whenever possible so this doesn't put pressure on them. And so that raises the question of how much the fact that you're polyamorous needs to be a secret and whether it's possible to not put your child into the position of potentially outing you um, so that you tell the people yourself whom your child might talk to about this so that they can hear it from you and not from your kids so that it doesn't leave the possibility of a surprise. It's some of that great poly communication. Avoiding surprises is often a, a good way to approach this. And there are some factors people can evaluate in terms of how safe it really is for them to come out. People often fear coming out as poly. Sometimes that's sort of our vague internalized shame that everyone's going to ostracize us if they find out. And often it's way less dramatic and the world doesn't explode when you come out as poly. And so the things you want to be really aware of are things like um, the grandparents of the child. You know, if you have a positive relationship with your parents, 
Um, if, if the child has a relationship with them, you might want to tell them so they can hear from you and not hear from your child and get alarmed. Very, very rarely grandparents do bring child custody cases um, or just, you know, have challenges in the family. So have the grandparents hear from you. But so your advice would be if you aren't out to your parents about being poly and, and they're the grandparents of your child uh, and you can't come out to them about being poly or you won't come out to them being poly, you shouldn't come out to your kid then about being poly. Because it's going to put the kid in a position of having to lie for you or join you in the closet. And is that fair? I think that's it's a really great question. And it's a tricky thing that's it's decidable by each parent. But generally, I would avoid putting your children in the position of needing to stay in the closet with you. Because so that, that, that really does burden the child. It really does burden the child. And so if you're just not coming out to your to your own parents because you think it's going to be a lot of awkward Thanksgivings and you'll have to... Uh, you know, deal with it and explain it to them, and there might be some arguments. You're the adult, so you're the person who can deal with that awkwardness and that challenge. And do that if your child's going to know and your child has a relationship with them, so your child's not put in that position. So no, so coming out to your kids as poly, it really is contingent upon you being out about being poly to the other people in your lives, your child's life, or comfortable being out to those people. Absolutely. And so if you have a situation in which you really feel like I cannot be out, such as um, with your employer, if, if you're employed at will um, by a major conservative corporation, they might fire you for being polyamorous. So think about, first off, whether that's something in your employee manual and company policies, whether it's really true that you might get fired. And number two, maybe that's a nexus of world where your child doesn't overlap with your work life anyway, so that doesn't matter. So the people who are in your child's life, they should know if your child might tell them. Okay, one other sort of permutation on, you know, a possible scenario here. What age is it appropriate to come out? You know, here's mom and dad, and there's this very special friend who's around a lot. And you don't necessarily need to identify that person yet as a romantic partner or sexual partner, you know, age appropriate. Kids don't get sex. They don't even think their parents are having sex. That's a huge revelation. But what if it's not like there's a primary partner or a couple, and then there's this third who's you know, an adjunct or a secondary partner, what if it's an, you know, what if they were a triad or a quad before the kids came along and nobody's a primary, everybody's an equal partner to each other. It, 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 you know, you can't pass somebody, you can't pass the third or the third and fourth off then as special friends. They're also parents, also partners. And there's no moment at which to make the reveal. The reveal is hardwired. Is it not? Absolutely. So if you're in a situation in which you're not in some sort of primary uh, couple structure such that you could blend in with additional um, partners, then you want to come out to your children, but it's going to be coming out as a family configuration. Like you have three mommies mm-hmm. or you have, you know, two moms, two dads, um, if you're a polyamorous triad or quad. And I work in those kinds of situations with co-parenting between three or four people very frequently with perhaps a gay couple and a lesbian couple who want to co-parent, um, or maybe there's platonic co-parenting with um, a single woman and a gay couple. And so in a similar kind of way, you'll be explaining that you, there are, you, know, you have three moms or you have two moms and a dad. Yeah, maybe it's not a problem at all. Maybe I'm making it a problem. It's just like I've been thinking of all the times all the people who've asked me uh, about when Terry and I told TJ we were gay, when we had to break it to our son that we were gay. And we're like, we never had that conversation. Like we were just his parents and there was no question. Like, he didn't have to right. have gay explained to him. He knew that some people 
Some men were men who had male partners who were in love. And we were in love like the parents of his other friends were in love. And there was no like big coming out because it wasn't necessary. Maybe an established triad or quad that has a child, there's no big coming out necessary. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, either the, the child would just know I have, you know, several parents um, and they, it may be obvious in a similar kind of way to your situation that, you know, I have three parents who are in love with each other, like other people's parents are in love with each other. And presumably, if you're living as a triad or a quad, you're already dealing with some of that social challenge of being out. And you've already decided it feels safe for us to be out and out to the school district and out to the pediatrician, um, out to the families. And so you've already made that decision. And then hopefully and presumably, you're going to create social situations where you're doing some of the coming out at your child's school for your child so that this isn't some big surprise. And you can let other parents know, for instance. In your practice, have you had cases where, you know, the poly parents were out to their kid and the kid said something to an ex, the kid said something to a friend, or the kid said something at school or grandparents and it was a problem. There was a custody dispute. There was legal trouble. Yes, definitely. I, I do many cases like that and the challenge is often from that surprise and from – um, somebody like a school teacher or a, you know, oftentimes it's the other mom or dad at visitation in a, in a, a family that's with separated moms and dads mm-hmm. or separated parents. And so it's, it's that idea that they're hearing this from the child and maybe it's some reveal of something dangerous. Maybe there's something that's inappropriate happening around the child. And, and so it's the keeping of that surprise. And then the child going through a trauma that now I've screwed up and mommy and daddy are in court because I, I told a secret that was mommy's secret. And so you don't want your child to be in that situation. And you don't want to put your child in that situation, which means you really need to think through not just what your child could handle, you know, around information about their parents' sexuality, their romantic lives, but whether your child can be as open with everyone in your child's life as they're in, inevitably going to be. Because I, I actually right. don't, you know, I don't think that as a gay parent, it would be fair to me to have a child to come out to my child and then tell my child he's not allowed to tell anybody. Because 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 he's not he's not going to keep that secret for us. Right. He can't. He shouldn't have to keep that secret. Right. So so the the just to like boil this down, the advice then would be to poly parents with children is don't come out to them if you're not out generally. Absolutely right, and don't come out to them. You know, think about whether there are places in your life. Okay, maybe it's just your job where you're not out. Um, your child isn't going to intersect there, but maybe every other place socially, it's going to be worthwhile mm. and. Yes, it might be difficult, but it's going to be easier for people over time. The more people come out, the more people can have an idea and an image of somebody that they know who's polyamorous, somebody that they know who's in any kind of non-traditional relationship. The more people do that, the easier this will be for other people. And I think it's not to be underestimated that there could be challenging situations for your child, but I think that they're manageable, just like you know, if you have interracial parents in some parts of the country, or if you have gay parents, or your right. parents are Buddhist and everybody else in your area is Catholic, um, you can explain to your child, this is the way that our family is. Maybe we believe that there are different ways to love and have relationships. What's most important is to be honest and treat everyone with respect, but not everybody agrees. And you might want to be aware that some kids at school um, might have families that disagree with that. So you might want to think about it, whether it's something that you want to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, that I spent the weekend with mommy and daddy and their boyfriend. And, right. you know, 
it's something to not be underestimated that there could be situations where they get teased at school about that. But this is not something that ends up being huge, usually a hugely traumatic experience. It's a chicken and the egg situation. You know, there's a graham cracker commercial out with a gay family with a couple of uh, gay white dudes and there are two adopted children. And the tagline on this graham cracker commercial is, this is wholesome. And they're talking about graham crackers, but also this family. But they wouldn't be putting, you know, same-sex couple parent families into wholesome graham cracker commercials if same-sex couples who were parenting hadn't come out years ago when it was much riskier. I remember watching a documentary about queers and parenting and interviews with adult children who'd been raised by lesbians in the 60s and 70s who were told by their moms that they couldn't tell anybody that they had two moms. That they were they're out to their kids, but their kids couldn't be out about their family because because of the threat of having them being taken away, of losing them to exes or interfering biological family members, you know, grandparents. Um, so I don't want to be a hypocrite in that you know there's some ways that same sex couples who've parented, you know, did tell their kids and then asked them to keep the secret because they were in such peril legally. On the flip side, it was gay couples who had kids coming out that made the world understand that same-sex couples with parents, that same-sex couples with kids were a thing and not a harmful or a threatening thing and certainly not a harm or a threat to their own children. So we need poly families to come out to make the world safe for poly families to be out. That's how it's a chicken and an egg thing. Yes, absolutely. And there's a wonderful study by Dr. Elizabeth Sheff who wrote the book Polyamorous Next Door about longitudinal study of our kids and poly families and that many of them seem to do very well, have pride in being able to stand up for their families when their families are different. Um, and I think that the same way that we hear from some people who said in the 60s and 70s who had gay parents, sometimes there were challenges at school, um, but generally it was a very positive experience. I think we'll see that with polyamorous families today where there might be some challenges with coming out. It might be uh, difficult, especially for the first people to do this, but that this is going to be something that we can then normalize um, after other people have to talk to their school district about the fact that they're co-parenting with three people. That will make it easier for the other polyamorous people who do that later, or even for the gay couple with the sperm, you know, the gay couple and, you know, a single mother who's co-parenting with them. So people will get used to other family configurations the more we're open about them. Diana Adams, managing partner of Diana Adams Law and Mediation, and also guilty of hanging a shadow of Sodom and Gomorrah over American, according to the religious right. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today to talk about poly issues some more. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for talking to me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm an early 30s straight woman from a large city in the Northeast. After two years on and off OkCupid, a man messaged me who is 99.8% match and also happens to live in my city. Of course, we connected instantly on every level. The first red flag was that he wanted to message, text, or gchat for a few weeks before meeting. In my experience, this has been an indication that the guy isn't serious about dating or is catfishing, or simply just isn't that into me. But he assured me that he was, and that it was just his busy schedule and odd working hours that got in the way. I continued our exchanges despite his rescheduling three times and pushing our date into week five. But he suddenly, aggressively probed at the question of how many partners I've had while we were G-chatting. Historically, I've been reluctant to get into this until I'm solidly feeling it with someone. But we've been in total agreement in the area of sex. While bef well, before I could even tell him, he went into a shocking, slut-shaming rant that thoroughly insulted me and left me shaking and nauseous. 
I'm a really good, kind person that just happens to have a really high sex drive and a very GGG open mind. I refuse to be slut-shamed. I told him to move on because I obviously wasn't the right girl for him. He's been texting and emailing me ever since, though, asking me to still meet with him while he works through this. Dan, I really like this guy until his judgmental, ignorant, and brazenly assuming rant. It's a total contradiction of everything that led up to this. My initial instinct was to DTMFA, but that's my MO at the sign of any risk, complication, or hurdle in dating, so I've been trying to work through issues rather than running. But this one is a big one. So do I stick through this and educate him on why his rant is misguided and uninformed? Or is this a clear-cut case of DTMFA and move on? You've never met this person. You have this problem that you identify that you're too quick to the DTMFA. You're too quick to dump people at the first sign of trouble, at the first infraction. They're gone. Throats are slit. Relationship's over. Um, and that is something you're going to need to get over. You will never be in a truly long, long-term relationship if the first time somebody puts a foot wrong or steps on a landmine or does something shitty that they need your forgiveness – for the relationship to continue, you're out the door. You will never have a relationship that lasts if you can't forgive, even a betrayal. Never have a relationship that lasts. But this does not seem like the guy that you should break through this issue of your own for. This guy that you have never met, five weeks, drawing it out, says he lives in the same city where you live, right? Um, but always has an excuse about why he can't get together, always pushing off an actual face-to-face meeting. He's not worth it. If you'd been dating him for five weeks, if you'd hung out a bunch and were getting to know each other face-to-face and you really liked him and you had verified his fucking existence, yeah, then maybe he has some bullshit slut shamey meltdown because he's ill-informed. Uh, because no one's ever gotten in his face about his sexist bullshit, then maybe one or two more meetings to see if you can't break him of that. That's a big fucking task, though, to break somebody of those kinds of sexist double standards and hang-ups. But still, maybe one or two more meetings if you knew for sure that he was an actual human being who fucking existed. My hunch is this is not a person who lives in your city. My hunch is that this is somebody trawling around on OkCupid for single women in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, that he weasels his way into their affections and never can actually physically meet. Maybe he's not even in this country and he has this reaction to when the conversation turns toward sex. And that's not somebody that it's worth investing uh, one more moment in. At five weeks, even if he hadn't had this slut-shamey meltdown, I would have pulled the plug already. Because it's so inherently suspicious to have somebody push back, push back, push back the meeting. That means they don't look anything like their photos. That means they're lying to you. That means something, something very wrong. Usually people are anxious to get to a face-to-face meeting. He isn't. So DTMFA this guy, the next guy, somebody that you date, somebody that you see and hang out with and like and have drinks with, maybe have sex with a few times. When you get to that point where he does whatever it is that in all past relationships you would have gone straight to DTMFA, then you can work on your DTMFA issue for that guy but not for this guy. So I think the reason this guy wants you back is he's a bullshit scam artist on the other side of the world and he's invested five weeks in you 
and you, he's just about to get to the ask for money or whatever else that he's after and you guys tripped into this conversation where he revealed himself to be a sexist piece of shit and you walked. And so he wants you back because he doesn't want that five weeks investment to go to waste or he is just a sexist piece of shit who wants to win you back because he wants to have a punching bag with a vagina because he's just a sexist piece of shit and so he wants to keep you around You'll play nice for a while, something else will come up and he'll get to beat you down again because of some sexist bullshit, some other sexist bullshit next time. In either case, you don't need him. You don't need him in your life. There's a lot of sex researchers and scientists out there digging into human sexuality, trying to figure out who we are, what we do, what we like and why we do it. We invite them onto the podcast one at a time every once in a while to present us with their latest findings, the conclusions from their new research and a little segment that we call What You Got. Joining us by phone, Dr. Ariel Cooperberg, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So, Dr. Cooperberg, what you got? Um, so, I have a new study out looking at cohabitation and divorce. And research has long found that uh, cohabitation caused divorce. This has been found for decades. Research has been finding this since the 80s. Social conservatives have argued that, you know, living in sin and, uh, you know, living together before marriage means you're less likely to get married and your marriage, if you eventually do marry, is likelier to fail. That's been the argument out there since the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I did was I looked at the age. I took into account the age at which they were moving in together and I found that when you take into it take that into account, there is no relationship between cohabitation and divorce. Cohabitation doesn't cause divorce. What was happening was previous research was kind of measuring the wrong thing. So they were comparing couples by the age at which they married each other and taking into account the age at which they got married because we know that when couples marry at younger ages, they're more likely to get divorced. Mm -hmm. But I looked at the research that said, and I was like, why are couples that marry at younger ages more likely to get divorced? And the reason they're more likely to get divorced is because they're not mature enough to choose partners and to start taking on the roles of marriage. And for couples that move in together, those roles of marriage, that choosing a partner, that doesn't happen when they go to City Hall and get a marriage license. That happens when they move in together. So when I started looking into that, nobody had ever taken that into account. And when I took that into account, um, I, the relationship disappeared. It explains why previous research had found this effect. But what that really means is that cohabitation doesn't cause divorce. What causes divorce is settling down when you're too young. So a lot of previous studies, you know, people who would cohabitate and then decohabitate because you would move in with somebody and then move out and then move in with somebody else, you're kind of auditioning people to perhaps be the person you're going to move in with and marry, right? Whereas yeah. people who marry early, marry young and move in, them, that's their first hammering out a relationship. That's their first working those roles out of uh, yeah. as husband and wife or partner and partner or roommate and roommate or whatever. Yeah, and they haven't tried it out first. And people who are getting together younger, they may not have as much relationship experience. They may not know what they want. They may um, they may change, right? People change a lot when they're in their early 20s. Mm -hmm. And they may find that they change in ways that aren't compatible with their partner, but they're kind of with that partner and now they're married to that partner, right? 
and then those those differences lead forth later on. I guess I'm having a hard time understanding yeah. how previous studies found cohabitation was correlated strongly with divorce as opposed to marrying young correlated strongly with divorce. What were they looking at that was the problem or that led to the to the error in the conclusions? Um, well, the problem was they were looking at couples by the age at which they were getting married and um, cohabitors were forming their relationships earlier. And we know when people form their relationships earlier, they're more likely to divorce. So they were... They were comparing couples by the age at which they got married, but not taking into account that cohabitors were forming these relationships earlier. So they were finding that cohabitors had a higher divorce rate because they were comparing kind of the wrong ages, if that makes sense. Uh, So if you just set aside the whole cohabitation issue entirely, not ask when they moved in together or whether they lived together before they got married, and just look at the age of marriage, that corrects. Yeah, I think. So what's the takeaway here? The, your, your advice for people who want to marry someday, to the young people listening to this show who picture marriage in their future, sleep around a lot and wait till you're 30 and then get married? Um, it's not 30. The age I find is around 23, that you shouldn't settle down with any one person until you're 23. Uh, because before that, you're kind of too young, not mature enough. And even if you are mature enough, you know, you change a lot until around that age 23. That's kind of this magic age. <laughs> if you settle down after that, you're fine. You're much less. divorce l- risk. You have less than a 30% chance of divorce. Oh, wow. That's, an, that's a great stat. Less, of a thir- less than 30% chance of divorce if you marry after age 23, which is when I met Terry. My husband, I met him when he was right. 23. Have you got, you know, you're in North Carolina and you're telling people to wait to marry. North Carolina, the South, the Bible Belt, those are the states where people marry young because they've had it hammered into their heads that you can't have sex before marriage. So if you're young and you want sex, you got to marry at 18 or 19 or 20. Have you gotten any sort of criticism or pushback from social conservatives in your part of the world? Um, I actually haven't. I mean, I was just on a conservative, Michael Medved, conservative radio show. And on he purpose? Was kind of, yeah. Why not? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was kind of like, oh, but you, do you think cohabitation is the same as marriage? And I don't think they're the same as marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I haven't had a lot of pushback. I'm not from the South originally, though. I started this study when I lived in Philadelphia. <laughs> Home of the same people. So where can people find the study and what's the name of it? If somebody wants to get on the Google and find your study and read it for themselves. It's called Agent Co-Residence, Premarital Cohabitation and Marriage Disillusion. 1985 to 2009, and it's coming out in the April edition of the Journal of Marriage and Family. And there's also a great write-up of uh, your research and the the conclusions at Slate, uh, if people want to find that. Dr. Ariel Cooperberg, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, thanks so much for uh, joining us today for this week's What You Got. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. This is a 39-year-old straight uh, married guy, and I've got a question about uh, honesty, I guess. I've been with my wife now for over 10 years, and during that period, you know, we sort of made the transition from sort of carefree, reasonably successful late 20-year-olds to uh, a married couple, two um, great young kids, and a few hits along the way, financial crisis, lost their jobs, and then sort of had to build ourselves back up. Anyways, the good news is um, we've got two healthy kids, a great marriage, uh, sex life is great, probably twice a week. Um, but, you know, we've also sort of aged along the way. 
and I run my own business. Um, that took a while to set up, but it's successful, so you know we're happy. I guess my, what it comes down to in the end is uh, life got a lot more exhausting along the way. And so every, if we're lucky, six weeks or so, we get to take some time off. Um, usually it's a night where we can go out and have dinner. Usually we drink too much. And we sort of relive the, the glory days back in the day when we didn't have any responsibility. As part of that, I live in a country sort of far away where Viagra is readily available. I'm healthy. I've spoken to a doctor about it. Uh, and I tend to use it on these nights where we drink too much. And it sort of takes the pressure away. Now, we have these nights without Viagra all the time, and that seems to work fine. But it does help. I don't know if it's just a confidence thing and or, or you know, if I should just admit that I'm approaching middle age. And... It helps a lot. Now, I haven't told my wife that I'm doing this, and I guess that's the question. You know, I think it would take some of the magic away. These nights are fun. It's fun, and they're fun because of the sort of carefree aspect of it all. But she would probably have a problem with the whole idea of, of medication in that process. And I haven't told her because uh, it's fun for me. I think it's fun for her. And uh, I guess my question is, is this sort of a white lie? that's acceptable under the circumstances or is this a lie that shouldn't be allowed to persist? Is the Viagra a lie like makeup and underwire bras and spanks? I guess so. You have a right to your autonomy. Even in a marriage, you have a right to some privacy and you have a right to medication. If you want to take this medication, if only for your sense of confidence uh, on these nights when you make the mistake of going out and drinking and eating first, you should fuck first. Don't go out and drink and then go fuck. Particularly your age, your advanced age of 39. Uh, you're less likely to be able to get it up if it's late at night and you're exhausted and you're already soused. You might want to stay home, fuck, and then go out. But if you want to pop a pill quietly, privately, as an insurance policy, without going to your wife, who you know her better than I do, if you think that her knowing this would make her go, oh, aren't I enough? I guess I don't turn you on the, the way I used to, which has nothing to do with it. It's just you want this insurance policy, psychological perhaps. Perhaps it's just the placebo effect. But you really want your dick to come through on these nights because you are still attracted to her and you want this to work. And you know her well enough to know that hearing about the pills would sandpaper her insecurities. Then don't tell her about the pills. You can spare her that. You can tell her a little white lie with your great big dick. It's not a problem. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question for you. I have a new partner. We've been together uh, twice, and the sex is fucking fantastic. The chemistry is amazing. Um, I just have one question. He says he was bitten about 20 years ago during a blowjob, and he gets anxious when he is having his cock sucked. And I love oral sex, I, and it's something I really want to do for him. He seems to enjoy it, um, but then at some point gets anxious, and I'm not quite sure what to do. I end up stopping and we move on, and that's fine. But I'm wondering if there's any way that I can help him get over it. It's been 20 years, so I'm not really expecting that I can magically help him get over it, but uh, I'd certainly like to try. Do you have any tips or ideas other than just time and trust? Yeah, time, trust, blowjobs, maybe that'll help him get over it. 
applying the common sense filter to this problem, though, I suspect that this guy doesn't like blowjobs. And because the culture says that blowjobs are supposed to be the ultimate, every guy wants a blowjob, blowjobs are what married men miss most, and blowjobs, 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 and blowjobs in sex comedies, even sometimes porn, it just looks like add mouth to dick, get orgasm. So guys that oral doesn't really do much for, and those guys are out there, will often make up some story to get them off the expectation hook because they don't want to feel like they're not red-blooded, blowjob-loving, ass-kicking, pussy-pounding American men. So they'll say, oh, I got bitten once and you know, blowjobs traumatized me and I have a weirdness now about them rather than saying, you know, I just don't – I don't like blowjobs. And then you go, what? You don't like blowjobs? All men like blowjobs. What are you talking about? So instead he presents a more sympathetic front and says, you know, I would like blowjobs. I like blowjobs. I used to like blowjobs and then I was in a car accident during a blowjob and I don't like blowjobs anymore. So my advice to you, when he wants to be blown, if he's into it, blow him. When he doesn't want to be blown, don't blow him. Don't push it. And reconcile yourself to the fact that being with this guy means oral, particularly sucking cock, isn't going to be central to the sex because either he was traumatized by a molar many, many years ago that haunts him still or he just doesn't like head. Hey, Dan. I am a 40-year-old straight woman in Chicago, and I think I'm having a moral dilemma. Um, For the past seven and a half years, I have been in an on-again, off-again, and very casual relationship with a man who's quite good in bed. The sex is really fulfilling, but in the last year, I've realized that it's harder for me to reach an orgasm with him, and so I wind up getting myself off before I see him and then faking it when I'm with him. I have to say, fucking him is really good. It's almost like a mindgasm rather than a traditional orgasm, but I feel like a big liar. And this is not without his lack of trying, with the exception of maybe a couple of times. And I was pretty quick to tell him, you know, hey, you can't just two-pump chump me and call it a day, and then I need more warming up. I talked with my doctor, and she confirmed my thought that it may be a symptom of age, but it's the lying that I'm having a really hard time with. If you have any suggestions on maybe how to approach this with him. You haven't lost the ability to climax. You are orgasmic still. You are, as you said, getting yourself off before you see him and then faking it while you're with him. And what I infer in that description there is that uh, perhaps vaginal intercourse alone with him used to be enough to get you off. You would climax from vaginal intercourse alone with the foreplay and whatever else was tossed in. But for most of this 7.5-year relationship, as you've gone from, what, 32 to 40, that was – you were one of those women who the angle of penetration was giving you exactly the, the right amount of clitoral stimulation that you needed, internal or external, to get off. Bodies change. You've aged. I agree with your doctor. This could be a function of age. What you now require is slightly different. That happens to men. It happens to women as we age, as we get older. The intensity, the locus, the focus, all of that can – subtly shift over time. So what was working seven and a half years ago when you were in your early 30s isn't working now. That doesn't mean you don't work. You just work a little differently and you should be able to say that to him. If you can get yourself off alone, you should be able to get yourself off with him or he should be able to get you off when you're together just in this other way, whichever way it is that works for you. I don't know what you're doing when you're alone before you see him. Vibrators, external, whatever it is that you're doing, incorporate that into the sex you're having with him 
and you will be getting off with him and he will be getting you off. But you should tell him. You should inform him. I enjoy the sex. I have these mind orgasms. It's awesome. You know, but I was a little insecure and self-conscious about the fact that, you know, I've, my body's changed a little bit. And so what we were doing then isn't enough now. And so there's different things. So what we were doing seven and a half years ago, that's not enough now. Now there's these other things. It's not like necessarily even more intense things. Just, you know, a focus in a different spot that I require. And I know you're so invested in my pleasure that you want me to get off with you and you want to get me off yourself. So here are the tools. Here's the info you need. This is where my body and my twat and my clit is at now. And let's do this. Let's do this together. You should say that or ask him to listen to the podcast and he can listen to me say it. Hi, Dan and the tech happy at risk use. I actually had an interesting conversation with my boyfriend's friend. He's covered in tattoos. He has sleeves of tattoos, which is where your arms completely covered in tattoos. And he was dating a girl that didn't have tattoos. And he said he didn't like dating girls that had tattoos because it covers up their body, which didn't make any sense because he did. And so it brought up this large argument where all of us, you know, debated whether having tattoos made a difference in someone that you dated. I know a lot of my girlfriends say, oh, that guy's got a lot of tattoos, he's really hot, or this guy's got a lot of tattoos and it's gross, or it depends on what kind of tattoos they have. I don't know, I was just wondering your perspective on the dating world in having tattoos or not having tattoos, because in our generation right now, tattoos are a big thing, and almost everyone that I see at least has one. I was just wondering how you felt about tattoos and if they affect the dating world in our generation, because I find it so strange that a guy covered in tattoos won't date a girl with tattoos, but then a girl with no tattoos wants a guy full of tattoos. I just, I don't know. We just had this large argument about it, and I figured we could settle this argument about whether it's a big deal or not, whether someone has tattoos by you. So if you could respond and let us know what you think, I could play it for them and, you know, settle the argument with you because it was a 50-50 argument. There's really no argument here to settle. Some people like tattoos and want to be with people who have tattoos. Some don't. Some people who have tattoos are attracted to people who have tattoos. Some people who have tattoos are attracted to people who don't have tattoos and vice versa in every case. It's just a matter of taste, which is subjective and on some level irrational. And to some people, tattoos symbolize one thing. Maybe they symbolize masculinity to that dude with the sleeves. And so he doesn't want his girlfriend or the woman he's dating or fucking covered in what to him is kind of the symbol of masculinity. And she has no tattoos herself because she feels the same way and blah, blah, blah. Who gives a fuck, right? Some people have tattoos. Some people don't. A lot of people your age have tattoos these days. They're ubiquitous. It was funny. Just a couple of years ago, I was at a water park in Waterloo, Iowa. A water theme park and I wanted to run home to Seattle and let everybody know with their earplugs and nose piercings and nipple piercings and enormous tattoos and sleeves that all of the farm boys and all of the Iowans at the water park outside Gilbertsville, Iowa near Waterloo were covered in tattoos, earplugs, nose rings that there's nothing sort of hipster, indie, urban, primitive about this shit anymore. It is mainstream. Terry and I were the least tattooed and pierced people 
at the water park outside Gilbertsville, Iowa. Hey, Dan. I'm calling to give you guys a big high five through the phone for your sex worker podcast. It was great to get so much information. Really cool that you could let it go on a little bit longer and pack even more in. And um, really nice just to get all that exposure out there. Um, I have a sex worker friend and it is um, a relief to me actually to see that there could be a future where people get to know more about the biz. They understand how it's for people's health and it's an essential need of all humans everywhere. And some people just happen to take care of that for money. Just a big, uh, I second that to what they said about it being a complete act. I have heard from my friend how lots of uh, clients will actually try to um, get her off and she'll, she'll fake it for them because the whole thing, the whole reason she's there is to take care of them. She does it for the money and it has the side benefits of feeling sexy and getting touch and some physical pleasure and sensuality, but it really is all about the client. And so like Mr. Smithies said, if they want to ask a question like, can I get you off? They should be prepared for the answer, which is in my friend's case, yes, you can get me off in a fake way. I will satisfy your desire to get me off um, with, uh, you know, whatever sort of performance you want. So that's just another way to, to go at it. Just a reminder for anybody else thinking about trying that, that it's not always actually what the uh, provider wants. It's actually something that they are doing for you. And so it should be appreciated. Hey, Dan. Um, I just listened to episode number 386. Uh, I downloaded the Magnum episode. I'm really glad I did because you used my question. I'm really excited about that. I'm real stoked. I am a 50-year-old woman that uh, was having issues with whether or not she was bisexual or gay. And uh, yesterday I was masturbating with my my vibrator and um, I was having trouble coming. I masturbated for like about an hour, hour and a half and couldn't get anything. And then I went back and tried later. And uh, right before I came, I yelled out, <laughs> I'm a lesbian. I accept myself for who I am. And I came like gangbusters, man. So um, I think I'm going to go out and eat some pussy and get my pussy eaten and see where that leads me. I'm really excited about that. Hey, Dan, I am a longtime listener and a gay male living in the South. And I'm calling about your anti-beard rant in Podcast 386. I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls about it. Um, I'm a gay man with a beard. I like gay men with beards. I know that there are a lot of gay men out there that like gay men with beards. Not all gay men are into clean-shaven dudes. You go on a lot about unfair body images for women. And those come from straight dudes. So maybe as gay dudes, we could stop having so many opinions about what other gay men do with their own bodies. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. A big thank you to Ariel Cooperberg and Diana Adams. You can follow Diana Adams on Twitter at Diana Adams ESQ. That's smart. Thanks also to the Wet Spots for our What You Got Stinger. Check them out at www.wetspotsmusic.com. And... 
Hump is coming to Long Beach, California on April 12th and then will appear in Dallas at the Texas Theater on April 19th. Hump, of course, is my amateur porn festival and it is hilarious and wonderful and life-affirming and sexy. You should all go see it. More information at humptour.com. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.